<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had... The, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock, all these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, he, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text WINE to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, it's Wednesday. Normally, uh, Congressman Mark Pocan is on in this first hour taking your calls for the hour. Uh, that will be tomorrow because he's got work to do in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, which happens from time to time. So it'll be Middays with Mark, Thursday edition, tomorrow. And right now, Will Bunch is with us. He's the senior writer for the Philadelphia Daily News and the political blog Attitude. 
and the author of numerous books, including Tear Down This Myth, The Right-Wing Distortion of the Reagan Legacy, one of my absolute favorite all-time books. And if you haven't read it already and given three copies to all your, uh, you know, or 30 copies to all your uh, Reagan-loving friends, please do. And The Burn Identity, a search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. Uh, his website is attitude.com, A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. And you can tweet him at Will underscore Bunch, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. Will, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Hey, it's good to, good to talk to you again. It's great having you with us. You, you wrote a piece about... Uh, uh, oh, Reality. Yeah. Reality uh, winner. Reality winner. Thank you. I, I, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, hard, it's, hard such... it's hard to forget a name like reality winner. It, it, it really I, is, I, I but, hear you. but I managed to, um, <laughs> or at least a piece of it. And, and, and yeah. I thought that this was just an extraordinary piece, that this, this young woman who, uh, well, first of all, tell our, tell our listeners and viewers exactly who was reality or is reality winner and what did she yeah, do. Yeah, is, uh, is she sitting in a, she's sitting in a county jail cell now waiting to get the, uh, Sentenced to uh, uh, serve out the rest of her five-year sentence in a federal prison. Yeah. She's, she's a uh, she's a young woman in her uh, late twenties. I want to say twenty-nine. I think um, uh, uh, from Georgia, a, an Air Force veteran. Uh, interestingly, she worked on the uh, on the drone program for the Air Force, and I think I think developed some moral objections to that, which she can't speak about because her work was very classified. But um, uh, when when she left the military, she ended up going to work for a um, contractor, uh, partly because of her top security clearance. Uh, uh, meanwhile, she was uh, like. Most of the people listening to the show, she was pretty horrified by what was happening in this country. She was kind of horrified by um, uh, what she was uh, learning and hearing about Russian interference in the election that she felt wasn't being publicized. And um, a little bit more than a year ago, I think it was uh, uh, May or early June of uh, 2017, um, uh, she got a hold of an NSA classified top secret document uh, that that really showed that Russian penetration of uh, electronic voting systems was more serious than the government was trying to let on. And um, uh, she leaked it. Uh, uh, The memo got published on the website, The Intercept, which is, I know a hot button, half the people in the world love The Intercept and half the people hate it, but that's where it was published. And um, uh, she was immediately identified as a leaker. Uh, She was arrested, charged with violating the Espionage Act, which was passed during World War One to convict spies, but now gets used against whistleblowers trying to expose government wrongdoing. And um, it's uh, it, and under the Espionage Act, it's almost impossible to mount a defense. You can't present evidence that you did this in the public good, or you know, or that it didn't harm national security. If you turned over a classified document, you're basically guilty. And uh, she was kind of forced to plead guilty, to plead guilty to this, a lesser charge. Uh, and was given a five-year and three-month sentence, which, by the way, is the longest sentence, uh, assuming she serves all of her time and isn't commuted like Chelsea Manning was. Um, it'll be the longest sentence a whistleblower's ever served in American history, basically. Right. Uh, for, 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 and, 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 and the reason why I wrote the column this week, uh, even though it was after, even though a plea deal was a couple weeks ago, um, a, a couple reasons. But one is the Mueller indictments that came out last week um, – uh, really had a big dose of what she was trying to warn people about in terms of uh, um, these Russian agents uh, who were working on our election and, and and their success in getting into election systems. And, and when she when she leaked this document, a lot of state election officials said, didn't know the extent and were actually given a warning saying, "Yes, you need to, you know, check your systems and update for this kind of." Uh, uh, attack that that, that was, was what she leaked basically. So I mean, she essentially did a public service. 
you know, she tried to warn people about the extent of Russian interference, and um, she's uh, behind bars. And a lot of people who know about it think it's an injustice. Uh, uh, one, th- one thing that really surprised me when I wrote this column yesterday, uh, I was kind of stunned to the extent of which people had not heard at all about this case uh, yeah. until, until I wrote about it. It got uh, virtually no coverage in the corporate press. It didn't. Uh, it, it's very weird, and, and it's funny because... I mean, I mean, you would think the story really dovetails with the whole conversation we're supposedly having about journalism being the enemy, you know, being the enemies of the American people, and and uh, you know, just Trump's uh, uh, wanting to put you know him and Jim Comey talking about putting the head of a leaker on a pike, and and uh, uh, you know, Trump is very eager to prosecute people for leaks, and he did. They, they prosecuted Reality Winner and gave her just an impossibly severe sentence. Although, wasn't it during uh, you, the Obama administration that she was arrested? Uh, no, 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 no. So she was, was arrested in 2017. So it was yeah, after so, the inauguration. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And, um, and, 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 and by the way, in the piece, since you bring that up, I, I did talk about the fact that Obama's record on whistleblowers was, was awful. Right, and James um, Rice and all that. Yeah, I mean, eight, eight, eight whistleblowers were prosecuted under the Obama administration, which was a record. And he he had run on a promise to reform uh, you know, to, he was going to do a whistleblower to, protection to, act to, to, to do encourage whistleblowers, and he did the exact opposite of what he promised. It was very, right. it was very disappointing from from Obama, who I think you know generally did a good job, but I think this is one that was one of his biggest failings. But back to America. Reality Winner's um, specific warning: here's a woman with a top secret clearance who's watching in real time from a from a contractor's perch as Russian hackers are getting into our voting systems. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, how Don Siegelman lost the 2002 election for governor of Alabama, which I think is one of the biggest scandals in, in oh, recent gosh. American history. Yeah. Uh, he had right. won the election. He went to bed governor. And uh, in the middle of the night, one election official, who was also the head of the Republican Party in that county, sat with his vote tabulating machine and noticed that 15,000 with a 000 people had actually not voted for Bob Riley, the Republican. They had actually voted for Don Siegelman, the Democrat, even though they voted for all Democrats, all down ticket. And suddenly those 15,000 votes got flipped in that one, on that one machine by that one guy in that one district at 1 o'clock in the morning. And the next morning when uh, Siegelman woke up, uh, Bill Riley, or Bob Riley, the Republican, whose campaign manager, uh, Lura Canary, or her husband, Bill, Bill Canary, was... Laura Canary was the federal prosecutor, uh, you know, for, uh, that George W. Bush right. appointed. And, and her husband, who was the campaign manager for Bob Riley, was also Carl Rove's best friend in college. And so when, when uh, uh, Don Siegelman started complaining about the election being flipped electronically, I, you know, they threw him in prison and, uh, you know, in solitary confinement. It was on this show. In fact, he came on the show to talk about it, and they threw him back in solitary confinement for another six months because he came on this program and talked about this. I mean, it, yeah, it's well, just well, amazing well, how deep God, they tried God, to bury that. God, yeah, I mean, God bless you for saying that story. I, I, I knew Don Siegelman. I actually worked in Alabama as a journalist in the, in the early 1980s when he was uh, on, on his way up yeah. uh, politically. And um, uh, just, just a good person. And what was done to him was a travesty. But, you know, I mean, I mean the, 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 the flaws and the potential for abuse in our electronic voting systems uh, are just, you know, t- talk about... Well, systems blinking red. It, yeah, and that's yeah, what that's I, where I was going with that. Is is if if a if a political hack in rural Alabama can alter you know the entire state election electronically, right. um, and the Russians can can get into twenty some 
plus states electronic systems, then certainly the DNC or some sophisticated brand, you know, group uh, hired by the DNC, like some, uh, you know, or excuse me, the RNC, the Republican Party. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it could right. be the DNC too, for that matter. I mean, if 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 yeah. the Russians yeah. can hack it, if if a political hack working for Bob Riley in Alabama can hack these systems, then any idiot can hack these systems. And you know, we we it, it flips me out, or what concerns me, Will, is that this story is constantly being put in the frame of evil Russia, rather than the frame of look at how vulnerable we are. Yeah, you know, yeah, Russia's you know trying to mess with our elections. In all probability, so is China, so is Israel, so is Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, you could go through the list of countries that, that are overtly, uh, you know, uh, lobbying in the United States and supporting political candidates, um, or, you know, occasionally covertly. Um, any well, one yeah, of them think, would have think, an incentive to do yeah. this. I, 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 think, I think you and your listeners would be very interested uh, in, in thinking about a development that just happened in the last 24 hours, which is down in Georgia, you had this uh, Republican named Brian Kemp, who is the Secretary of State, who just... Uh, uh, with, with President Trump's uh, over-the-top support, won won the Republican primary uh, there, and it's going to be in a uh, kind of a fascinating race this fall for for governor of Georgia. But what's interesting is, so Secretary of State, he oversees the voting systems in Georgia, and they've had a huge problem there with. Uh, people are very concerned about the security of their electronic system, and uh, a bunch of activists actually filed suit earlier this year trying to get. The, uh, the electronic voting records from this Brian Kemp's office uh, and, and a state university that actually manages the servers. And uh, the day after the lawsuit, the servers were wiped, wiped clean, basically. Wow. Uh, so, so, we, so we don't know what was on those servers. And, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting now that this guy is, uh, you know, he should be in big trouble for this, but instead he's, he's in line for a promotion, right? He's, he's, he's running for governor and probably has a slight edge because Georgia is a fairly conservative state, not as conservative as it used to be. But um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot, you know, there, I mean, there's, there's, there's legislation in Congress that would, um, you know, re- require paper ballots. So you don't, I mean, I, I just think a situation where you have an all electronic tally uh, is just an imitation for uh, abuse, you know, yeah. for, for fraud. Um, and, um, you know, there's no, there's no, I mean, you should have paper ballots. I think you should have regular audits to make so the public can feel reassured. Because I think right now the public doesn't have confidence in our voting systems. Yeah. And, uh, and with that, good and, reason, and apparently. That, right, and, and that's that's just destructive for democracy overall. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have faith in your elections uh, and and that and that the people who are getting the most votes are actually winning, then you're not going to have much faith in your democracy. Yeah, well said. So we need to check this out. By the way, did Reality Winner find any evidence that the election outcome was actually altered? Oh uh, well, I think there needs to be more investigation. I mean, you 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 can uh, uh, there's no evidence of votes being flipped, but you can monkey with people's registrations. They show up at the polls. They're right. Not lots of ways to uh, lots of ways to change yeah. an election. Will Bunch right. uh, is his website attitude a t t y t o o d dot com, and we'll hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman program, and you can and you can tweet him at will underscore bunch. Uh, you know, he's one of the great writers and reporters of our day. Uh, we'll be back, and be sure to check out his book on Reagan. It's spectacular. We'll be back. Welcome back. 34 minutes past the hour. Some genuinely bizarre goings on in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump gets on Air Force One. There's a piece about this in today's, uh, I believe it's the Washington Post. It might be the New York Times. I read both of them throughout the day. and, and uh, <laughs> but in any case, It's probably a both. Um, 
and and what they're in fact actually I can just check while we're talking and tell you it's in the New York Times and uh, in fact it's titled a stir on Air Force One as a television is tuned to CNN so he gets on the he gets on Air Force One and you know he and Melania have separate they kind of lead separate lives they they have separate bedrooms separate living quarters in the in the White House and in Trump Tower and apparently separate bedrooms on Air Force One and he sees that her TV is tuned to CNN while his is tuned to Fox News. And he goes just bat guano crazy. I mean, he just starts yelling and screaming obscenities at people. Obviously, he's very frightened that the First Lady, that Melania, might be exposed to reality, to what's really going on, and, and orders them never to have any of these TVs on anything except Fox News. He has to live inside his bubble. Meanwhile, inside his bubble, Michael Cohen, who used to be part of his bubble, is kind of cracking. And last night, Rachel Maddow played uh, this clip on her show. And Louise and I were sitting there listening to it, watching the show, listening to it. And as she played it, I swear to God, I heard Trump say, we just have to wait for another three weeks or uh, maybe three months. I, I, I swear I heard that. I thought I heard that. And then Rachel on her program had, uh, or maybe it was uh, Lawrence right after. We watched a little bit of Lawrence uh, before we went to bed. Um, but one of them had Adam Schiff on and said, well, what did you think about the tape? And Adam Schiff said, well, you know, when he said that he was going to, all he needed was to delay for a couple of months. Now, keep in mind, this conversation happened two months before the election. So it would have made sense that he was saying we only had to delay it for, for two or three months rather than two or three weeks, which is what I thought I heard. And, but he heard it, too. And I'm, I'm saying to Louise, see, I'm not crazy because everybody was ignoring it. And I thought that was like the most important part of the tape. That's actual evidence of, an, of a conspiracy to conceal information from the American people that can affect the U.S. election by paying off a woman that Trump had a year-long sexual affair with right after his son was born. But now, I, you know, I've, I've got the, the podcast from Rachel's show last night, and I play this, and I don't, you know, I only hear a little tiny bit of that. And I'm going to play it for you, and you can, you can hear this. And her podcast is you know, all over the place now, iTunes and whatnot. And, but this is, this is from the tape, and it comports with the one that CNN has put out. But it sounds to me like there's an edit. It sounds to me like right after Donald Trump says, we only have to wait a couple of like that, it sounds to me like there's actually a clumsy edit on this tape. But you decide. Here, here it is. This is uh, Donald Trump talking to Michael Cohen. Uh, this, is, this is in the context of the Ivanka thing, you know, where the New York Times has subpoenaed them about Ivanka. They want to release the, the, the um, uh, divorce records. And in, that, in those divorce pleadings, according to at least one book, Ivanka had said that Donald beat her up and raped her. And she's since walked that back. But, this, but now the New York Times was digging into this two months before the election. Here's the conversation two, three weeks now. All you have to do is delay it for... Even after that, it's not going to ever be... You hear that? All we have to do is delay it for... And, you know, in fact, maybe I can just play this again, just a little bit of it. That's served from the New York Times. I told you this was regarding to unseal the divorce papers with Ivana. Um, Ivana, his first uh, wife. Kasowitz is going to... Never be able to get that done. Never. Never. Kasowitz doesn't they'll ever be able They don't have a... Give me a conflict. There must be something terrible in the divorce papers. A woman that doesn't want to see Correct. So, yes, and it's all... It's been going on for a while. For about two, three weeks now. All you have to do is delay it for... Even after that, it's not going to ever be... All you have to do is delay it for... You know, either he stopped himself 
which is unlikely, or somebody edited that tape. And I think that's, that's where the actual evidence of criminal conspiracy is right there in that cut. I'd like to know what the hell is going on. Meanwhile, a federal judge just uh, said that uh, Trump, this was today, just, just hours ago, in fact, it's breaking news over in the Washington Post. Uh, there is a lawsuit by the attorneys general of Maryland and D.C. against Donald Trump for continuing to own the Trump Hotel in D.C. And the piece that I wrote for Alternate, you can find it today, about his breathtaking incompetence. I point out that he's probably keeping that property because he desperately needs the money. His daughter, Ivanka, reported $4 million in income from the Trump Hotel in, in Washington, D.C. And her daddy owns a much bigger share of it. He desperate. I'm telling you, this guy is broke. And up to his eyeballs in debt to oligarchs around the world, including some major Russian oligarchs. And that's why he's behaving the way he is. And that's why he's holding on to this hotel. He needs the money. But now this federal judge says that this lawsuit by the attorneys general of Maryland and D.C. can go forward and they can actually begin discovery. They can begin interviewing people from the Trump organization about what foreigners are staying at the Trump Hotel and how much they're spending, which may put a crimp on foreign governments telling their people go stay in the Trump Hotel to make the president happy. I doubt it will immediately, but if they start digging out some dirt and start publicizing these, these governments, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have some substantial impact. So anyhow, uh, enough of my rants. I've got a whole bunch more for the second and third hour today, some fer fairly long and involved rants, in fact, that I think you're going to have a lot of fun with. Uh, but let's get to your calls. John in Portland listening on X-Ray FM. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, love the show. And uh, my Thanks. big uh, issue uh, is I'm a... Uh, uh, ex-Catholic, raised uh, Catholic grade school, and if this is no bigotry or hate against uh, Catholics and all over the world, but I believe in the First Amendment, uh, and I also believe uh, that we as uh, ex-Catholics, uh, cafeteria Catholics, practicing Catholics, whatever, if uh, we care about women's rights, and uh, Ireland passed by referendum uh, democratically to uh, finally give women the right to uh, control their own bodies and to get an abortion if they need it and birth control. Uh, we need to uh, assert ourselves, and I recommend calling uh, the archdiocese, your archdiocese, and tell the conduit to Rome, the Vatican, that if they uh, pursue uh, uh supporting a uh, right-wing uh, Catholic Opus Dei uh, Supreme Court judge from the Federalist Society. That's where they get these folks, is the way I understand it. Right. And just tell them, hey, uh, with all your uh, pedophilia protection uh, patriarchal programs and now this, uh, we are going to do a uh, mass excommunication if we yeah. have to. Okay, well, good luck with that, John. I, I don't, and thanks for the call. I, I don't see calling the archdiocese uh, as having much impact. They typically try to stay out of American politics, although that was, you know, that has not been the case on a number of occasions. But I think calling your U.S. senator, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, and saying Brett Kavanaugh, this guy that Trump has appointed, number one, is pretty much the only judge in America who is, has taken the position in writing that a president should not be interrogated about criminal acts he might have committed, that a president uh, should be immune from prosecution for criminal acts he may have committed, that a president shouldn't even have to bother talking to people about criminal acts he may have committed. And that's obviously why Donald Trump picked him out of the, out of the group that the Federalist Society gave him. Everybody in that group, of course, 
was uh, in favor of overturning a, rights, a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. And, uh, you know, this, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is pretty, pretty grim stuff. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's up? Hello, Tom. Uh, I am just in utter shock at just all of this horrible news that happened last week. It seems like every week seems to get worse and worse and under the, the regime. And I want you to start calling it the regime. That something I learned from Rush Limbaugh is that we should not be calling this a legitimate government. It is the regime in power. I would even go so far as to call it a foreign occupation for the most part. I think there is a conspiracy going on with the alt-right and international alt-right to take over the planet that I've been talking about. Yeah. And it goes far beyond Russia. It goes. Uh, it's not even a conspiracy, Jared. I mean, you know, Steve Bannon is over in Europe right now openly talking about his, his plans to, to inflame the alt-right in country after country and, and you know, essentially you know, take apart NATO and the, and the European Union. Exactly. And you see it in places like Israel with their new apartheid regime law yeah. there. Yeah. It is not a democracy at all. You see that well, it is a democracy, uh, but it's a democracy with, with uh, racial and religious segregation. Uh, and that segregation is literally segregation in the classic sense of the word. That is to say, one group of people have one set of rights and another group of people have a very different set of rights, which are subordinate to the first groups. In this case, it's exactly. Jews and Arabs, but you know, in the United States, it was whites and blacks. Um, exactly. Yeah, or in South Africa, it was whites and blacks too. Just the way exactly. the word apartheid came from. <laughs> Separate but equal, so to speak. But it's not even equal. It wasn't equal not in South Africa. Equal. It's not equal in, in Israel. Tragically, I think this is a big mistake. But um, you know, I'm not Israeli, and I don't do Israeli politics, so it's just I'm exactly. looking at it from the outside. It's like whoa. But you, but you're concerned about war with Iran, right? Exactly. I'm really concerned about war with Iran because I have a loved one in that region myself. Um, and uh, I, I, I seriously believe that Trump is going to do a war with Iran in order to prevent impeachment. Yeah. And, uh, this, this I, th I, th I agree with you, Jared. And, I, and, and in fact, the thing that causes me to agree with you is that in 2011, 2011, Donald Trump tweeted that Barack Obama would start a war with Iran to help him get reelected in 2012. And which means that Donald Trump has been thinking about war with Iran as an electoral strategy since at least 2011. That's scary stuff. Thank you, Jared. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim. It's lightweight. It's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great 
job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. Much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Colbert wins the award for the best line of the night last night. He said, uh, U.S. farmers are getting the Stormy Daniels treatment uh, by Donald Trump. First he screws them, then he pays them off. Yep. Okay, so that's, what's, that's happening. In Helsinki, we had this meeting with uh, this press conference with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in which a reporter stood up and asked President Putin, did you want Donald Trump elect to be elected? And did you direct your senior staff or your, your people, I forget the phrase he used, uh, to help with that, to help with that election? And President Putin says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, we wanted Donald Trump to be president because he would improve U.S.-Russian relations. That part, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, so I may be a word or two off, but essentially that's what happened. That little piece has been completely removed from the Russian online versions and has been shrunk down dramatically in the White House online versions. Yet it still lives in all the news sites, but the White House and the Kremlin are both saying, oh, apparently we didn't say that. Very strange stuff. Uh, very strange stuff. I, I just, you know, I share that with you without, without comment. I, I, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. But what I wanted to talk about this hour was health care. We had a caller in the last hour who said, you know, uh, right now the Republicans represent a little more than 30% of the American electorate, even though they control the White House, the House, and the Senate, and the Supreme Court. And uh, that is true. And that's largely because uh, states with very, very small populations like Wyoming and Oklahoma and, and whatnot uh, get two senators. And states with very large uh, populations, like California and New York, get two senators. So you've got a little over 30% of the population is represented by the Republicans in the Senate, yet they control the Senate. And, you know, a little over 40% of the American population is, is represented by Republicans in the House of Representatives, yet they control the House of Representatives. And in many states, I mean, like in Pennsylvania, you know, you, you, you get more, more votes for Democrats and yet they send, what, 11 or, 12, or 13 uh, Republicans to the House and only four or five, as I recall, Democrats. I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's in that, in that neighborhood. And this is happening all across the country. So neither the House nor the Senate actually represents the will of the American people. And certainly the White House doesn't. Trump lost by three million votes. And the Supreme Court doesn't, because if the Supreme Court hadn't put George Bush on the, on the bench in 2000, or on the, in the White House on 2000, and if, if uh, you know, uh, the, the Russians hadn't helped out Trump and, if, and, uh, and the billionaires hadn't helped out Trump and voter suppression hadn't helped out Trump uh, and possibly voter election hacking hadn't helped out Trump in, in 2016, he wouldn't be in the White House either. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't have all these you know, hardcore right-wing 
you know, I, I believe they're all Catholic now so far as well, which, you know, from Trump's point of view is, you know, if you put a Catholic on there, it's a reliable anti-abortion vote. In fact, I don't think there's a single Protestant on the court anymore. It's, uh, you know, if you get several Jews and, and everybody else is Catholic. So, uh, which is not an anti-Catholic rant at all, you know, <laughs> at all. But, but, you know, but sort of negates what comes before it, right? Well, maybe it, what I'm saying is that I think that they're cherry-picking fervently anti-abortion Catholics, because there's a lot of Catholics who are pro-choice. Uh, but but, but health care continues to be actually the thing that Americans are the most concerned about. Uh, there's a national poll, 57% of people uh, over 45 years old. That's their, their number one issue is health care. 54% of people who live in rural areas. Now, these are, these are typically Fox News watching uh, Republican voting people. And yet 54% of them say that health care is the number one issue for them as we go into this election. 53% of all women across the United States. We're still well over half. 52% of non-college educated whites. The so-called Trump base, or at least a small slice of them are the small so-called Trump base. So here we have, you know, health care is like the issue. In fact, when asked across the board, just all Americans, when asked, should government do something to make health care more affordable, 78% say yes. Which leads me to this befuddling story. This is from the New York Times, Abby Goodno writing, uh, the, head, the headline of Vote Expanded Medicaid in Maine. The governor is ignoring it. The Republican governor of Maine, Paul LePage. Brandy Sta it starts out, Brandy is telling the story of this 39-year-old breast cancer survival named Brandy Sta Staples. And Brandy had expected that uh, last month when Maine voters approved a ballot referendum to expand Medicaid so that people like Brandy could get health care, now, keep in mind, Paul LePage, five times the legislature passed an expansion of Medicare, Medicaid, and five times Paul LePage vetoed it. So it went to the people, and the people voted for it, and so it is now law according to the Constitution of Maine. And yet, to read from Abby Goodnow's piece in today's New York Times, ignoring the, yesterday's New York Times, ignoring the binding vote, Governor Paul LePage has refused to expand the program, blasting it as a needless, budget-busting form of welfare. He vetoed five expansion bills before the issue made the ballot, plus a spending bill this month that provided about $60 million in funding for the first year. Earlier this month, he went so far as to say he would go to jail by add, before I put my state in red ink by adding at least 70,000 more low-income adults to the state's Medicaid population of 264,000. Paul LePage is fighting fighting like hell to keep 70,000 Mainers from getting health care. In what universe is this a reasonable position? You've got Fox News doing pieces on TV about uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And I've got to write her name down on my computer here until I have it memorized. She's so new to politics. And it's an unusual name. But in any way... You have Fox News doing segments about, oh my God, she's calling for health care and education for everybody in America. Can you believe this? And, you know, of course, the billionaires who are watching are going, oh my God, that can't be. But the average Fox News watcher, they're going to have to stop doing this because these people are going to start voting Democratic. And if, if nothing else has, has opened the eyes of people in Maine, this has to be it. At the same time, the Democratic candidates for president are getting on board. They're figuring this out. 
that America actually wants, quote, free health care. And yes, we, we realize you're going to have to raise the taxes of billionaires and corporations to pay for it. Kirsten Gillibrand, who was the Clinton's best friend, she was, you know, Bill Clinton wrote the, for, or Hillary one or the other, wrote the forward to her book, who, who uh, was confronted by Stephen Colbert several years ago on television about all the money that she was taking from the banks. Uh, you know, she, uh, she had raised over $5 million from business PACs, and in 2013, I'm sorry, it was John Oliver on The Daily Show, uh, he pointed out that she took millions of dollars from Goldman Sachs, or lots of money from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, and said, what's required of you for that money? Because it makes me uncomfortable. And uh, Senator Gillibrand, of course, was also uncomfortable by that. Now, she has come out and said, I'm no longer taking money from corporate PACs, period. And, by the way, we should put a tax on the stock market on financial transactions to pay for, for single-payer health care. She was also labeled the Me Too Center. This has been one of her big issues throughout her career and throughout her life, apparently, is fighting for the rights of women, particularly against uh, the predation of men, uh, which is a fine, you know, I totally salute that. Although I think she went a little overboard when she called on Al Franken to resign. But she's always trying to be, you know, pushing the, pushing the borders, pushing the limits. Uh, you know, I think that was a fundamental mistake, and it's going to haunt her badly. But, you know, maybe people will forget. And, uh, you know, but, but now she, she was the first Democrat in the Senate to endorse a federal jobs guarantee. She was the first senator to introduce legislation. This is what Bernie campaigned on, that, that every post office in America should offer retail banking services to low-income people to kill the payday loan industry. She has embraced legalizing marijuana nationwide. She wants to tax the drug companies because, you know, to, to essentially, you know, force them to roll back their drug prices. She's backed the Wall Street uh, tax, and she said, you know, no more corporate PACs. This woman, she, she went from an A rating with the NRA when she was Bill Clinton's acolyte to an F rating now with the NRA because she's saying, I'm in favor of gun control. She says now her economic platform has roots in Franklin Roosevelt's Second Bill of Rights and Martin Luther King's call for full employment. Now, there are some people who are saying, oh, geez, you know, as the political winds shift, so does she. I say that's great. That's exactly what you want in a politician. You want a politician who can look at the electorate, listen to what they're saying, get a sense of the needs of the American people, and then campaign to fill those needs, to meet those needs, to do what Americans are asking for. Now, it does get problematic when you have a politician. I mean, Bill Clinton, go back and read, just Google Bill Clinton's New Covenant speech in 1992. It was his stump speech. I reprinted a large chunk of it in my book, Threshold. If you, if, you, if you have a copy kicking around, you can read it yourself. But it should be online. It should be easy to Google. And in that New Covenant speech, Bill Clinton campaigned in, two th in, in 1992 for president as an FDR Democrat. But he did not govern as such. He governed as a Al Fromm, uh, you know, DLC, third way, uh, uh, quote, centrist, I would say, corporatist. And, you know, so we got kind of kicked in the... In the, in, in the groin around that one. And, you know, Obama only had 72 business days out of his entire eight years where he controlled the House and Senate, and he passed some really good stuff, particularly Obamacare, which was his focus, his legacy. But the rest of those days, the Republicans controlled the Senate, so we really don't know what kind of a president Obama would have been if he'd actually had a Congress that could go along with, you know, doing the things that he was talking about. I have a feeling he would have been a pretty good president. 
as it was, you know, there were compromises and that were necessary because the Republicans controlled the show. But so, you know, I, I don't want to be fooled again like we were with Bill Clinton. But on the other hand, I don't want to to say that a politician who changes their minds on issues is a, is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a fundamentally a good thing. And Clinton didn't go from being, you know, a middle of the roader to being a progressive on, on the campaign and then back to being a middle of the road. Well, you know, I, I believe he'd been pretty progressive as the governor of, uh, of uh, Arkansas. But, you know, but I'm not a, an authority on Bill Clinton. I mean, I, I'd have to look it up. So. But this, is, this is just confounds me, that the Republicans think it's a winning issue and Paul LePage must think that this is politically going to work to his benefit to say to working Americans, and 100% of the people who will be covered by Medicare, Medicaid expansion are people who are working. The people who aren't working, they're already on Medicaid. This is for people who are making more than $2,000 a year and less than $16,000 a year. The working poor. This is the Tom Hartman Program. How Paul LePage can think that kicking the working poor in the teeth and then saying, no, we're, I'm not even going to pay for the guy to clean up the blood. I don't, how can he say that's a good policy? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Six minutes past the hour. Tom Hartman here with you. It's, well, it's functionally the top of the hour, the beginning of our third hour. And over, I wanted to talk about taxes and wages for a minute. And some of you have heard this rant before, uh, but it's worth revisiting in the context of what's going on right now. Elizabeth Warren was uh, interviewed recently on CNBC. John Harwood sat down. Uh, John Harwood, of course, a, a conservative Republican, uh, sat down with Elizabeth Warren and, and said, do you want to see these corporate tax cuts repealed? And she said, yes. And he said, back to 35%. And she said, it's not about the number. She said, you know, here's how I look at budgets and taxes. They're at the heart of this. A lot of people think they're just numbers. They're not. They are an expression of our values. The values of the Republican Party that passed those tax cuts are to give $1.5 trillion away to the richest Americans and the biggest corporations and let everybody else pick up the crumbs. I think the right way to think about this is we need a budget and we need a tax bill that works for all of us. So I'd like to see, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see us strengthen America's middle class. But John Harwood is stuck on this, you know, how much tax do I have to pay as a rich Republican? So he goes back to, is that what's too high for the top personal rate? And she says, again, it's not about a number. That's what negotiations are all about. But he wants a number. So he says, is 50% obviously too high? And she said, that's why you sit down and negotiate the numbers. And then he says, when Bush was president, his team articulated the view that it was a matter of right and wrong. that You shouldn't have more than a third of your income taken. Do you feel similarly that it's wrong for more than half of somebody's marginal income to be taken? Now, at that point, she could have said, well, that's only going to happen for less than 1% of the American public. And 99% of people who are paying income taxes are never going to see a 50% tax cut rate or a tax rate because that's the point you know, at which you start making millions of dollars a year. And so, yes, if, if you've made your first million this year, you're going to be taxed 50% on your second million or maybe on your fourth million. I'm okay with that. It, which is how I would have said it. But instead, what she said is, quote, 
Look, there was a time in a very prosperous America, an America that was growing a middle class, an America in which working families were doing better generation after generation after generation, where the top marginal rate was well above 50%, which is absolutely true. And he, John Harwood, says 90%. And she says, that's exactly right. But for me, the heart of the question is, you've got to ask, what constitutes a fair share in this economy? It depends in part on what the economy is. And she is so spot on. Although the headline by this, uh, by, by the transcript by Jim, Jim Hoft over at the Gateway Pundit is fake Indian Elizabeth Warren suggests 50% Democrat tax rates. This is the kind of unthinking crap that comes out of the, out of the bottom feeders in the right. But the, the, the reality, the simple reality that Americans, most Americans don't have any idea about and yet the proof is right in front of us. And if left-wing think tanks would be pushing this more aggressively, the way right-wing think tanks push their memes, it would be a good thing for all of us. The simple reality is that when taxes on working, average working people, when taxes on working people go down, paychecks go down. It's that simple. And we're seeing it right now. Wages are down over last year. Just in the last 12 months, wages Average working people's wages in the United States have dropped a little less than 1%. Now, why would that be? The economy is roaring along. There's people, you know, employers competing for employees. Why aren't they offering more money? Well, you know, the tax cut bill, the GOP tax scam, did actually give a tax cut to people making over 25000 a year. I mean, it was a small, you know, it was 50 bucks here, 100 bucks here, maybe $300 there. Uh, somebody making $60,000, dollars $80,000 might see, be seeing two or $3,000 more in their paycheck. Of course, if you're you know, one of the Koch brothers or if you're uh, you know, Donald Trump or his kids, you're seeing literally billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in tax cuts because of the progressive nature of the tax system. But there, is, you know, there was a tax cut for, for working class people, and that's why their wages are going down. Because their employers know that what people work for is after-tax revenue. When people are looking for a job, they're not saying to themselves, I've got to make $30,000 a year or I won't be able to survive. You know, gross, $30,000 gross. They're, they're thinking, I've got to make $30,000 after taxes or twenty or fifty or whatever it may be, depending on where they live, what they do, what their skills are, what their background is. And, and so if taxes go down, then after-tax income goes up. Now, you know, for short-term stimulus, that, that's a desirable thing. Obama did that for two years right after the Bush crash, the Republican great, great crash of 2007-2008. Obama said, we're going to suspend payments into the Social Security Trust Fund. Or, into, into, you know, two, we're going to drop the Social Security tax by 2% for a year and then by 1% for another year. And the result of that was that more money went into the hands of working people and it stimulated the economy. But it didn't raise wages either. Wages went down during that period of time. When you reduce taxes on people, wages go down because employers know that they've got more money in their pocket. They don't need to give them a raise. And when they hire new people, they can hire them at, you know, say your taxes went down 3%. So the new pay rate at, the, at that company becomes 3% lower than it used to be for new hires, which is why we're exactly what's happening. Now, on the other side of that, what happens when taxes go up? What if the top tax rate on working people was, as John Harwood was trying to imply, 50%? What if, what if you or me making you know, under 100 grand a year, under 50 grand a year, were to say, 
start having to pay 50% income tax? Well, you'd have a situation like you do in Denmark, where McDonald's starts out brand new workers at, at about $20 an hour. Excuse me, $28 an hour. And the reason why is because 50% of that's going to taxes. So after the tax, they're making 14 bucks an hour, which is a living wage in Denmark. The employers have figured it out. The employees have figured it out. The government's figured it out. And, and with the other 50% of that money, the government is providing people in Denmark, Danes, that you, you, don't, you can't just go to college for free. You get paid to go to college for free. You get a $200 a month stipend to help pay for your books and your housing and your food when you go to college in Denmark. You get a stipend when you go to a trade school in Denmark. You have absolutely free health care, which covers vision and dental and mental health care and everything, your entire life from birth to death. They've got excellent retirement facilities for elderly people in Denmark. I mean, they have a strong democratic socialist nation with high taxes. And what does that produce? High wages for working people. But it also means that if somebody's looking at 50% of their taxes, you know, being taken by the government, in quotes, you know, okay, cool, I'm making 60, I'm taking home 30, I'm making 100, I'm taking home 50, I'm making 200,000 a year, I'm taking home $100,000 a year. But when you start making like 5 or $10 million a year, so you're taking $5 million a year and $5 million is being taken by the government, at that point you're saying, you know, instead of giving that money to the government, maybe I should reinvest that in my company. Because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business person, and I'd like to see my company grow. So I'm going to buy some new equipment to make my business more successful. So this is how tax cuts work for average working people. When taxes go down, wages go down. When taxes go up, wages go up for average working people. Now, it's the exact opposite for very rich people. And don't you find it interesting that most Americans think that exact opposite is how it affects them. For billionaires who are setting their own wages and multimillionaires who are setting their own wages, by and large, when taxes go up, their, their income goes down or they have to raise their wages, take more money out of their companies, which they don't like to do. And, and their boards of directors are not happy about it. So when taxes go up, their wages go down. And when taxes go down, their take home goes up because they're setting their own pay. So, you know, the reality of how taxes affect average working people and the reality of how taxes affect the top 1% are literally completely different, or maybe the top 3% are literally completely different. And Americans fail to understand this. So, this is a simple fact that is known by every European. Everybody in Europe understands this. It reminds me again of that story I've, I've told many, many times. I was so startled by this. I was, I was traveling someplace, and I was up, you know, couldn't, couldn't sleep, and uh, up at 2 o'clock in the morning, turned on the TV, and I'm watching a live Bloomberg show from Singapore, where an American reporter who works for Bloomberg and who lives in Singapore, I believe he worked for Bloomberg, uh, is interviewing a German businessman, a wealthy German businessman, a dynastic German, you know, he owns a big company, he's worth, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and the reporter starts out by saying, sir, how much do you pay in income taxes? And he says, oh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's fairly high. And the reporter says, it's over 50%. And the guy says, I think it's in that neighborhood. And the reporter says, well, how can you stand paying such high taxes? And he goes, ah, it's not a problem for me. 
And so they, you know, and he changes the subject, right? The, the businessman, you know, I'm, I'm far more concerned about the cost of steel or something like that, which is what he was supposed to be being interviewed on. And so they talk about that for a few minutes. And then the reporter comes back to it. It's like a stone in his shoe, you know, he can't ignore it. And he says, you know, you're paying 50% income taxes. I don't understand why you're not outraged. And the guy says, well, I'm not outraged. You know, it's fine with me. And so, and he changes the subject again. And finally, you know, like 10 minutes into the interview, toward the end of this interview, the reporter comes back to it again, this American. I can't understand why you're okay with paying 50% income taxes. And the businessman pauses for a moment. You could just see the gears moving in his head. He pauses for a moment, and he looks this reporter right in the eye, right on the camera, looks him right in the eye. And he says, I'm happy to pay the taxes I pay because I don't want to be a rich man in a poor country. And that reporter was just, like, shocked. He just, it obviously never even occurred to him that taxes are what funds government, and government is what provides the infrastructure, the soil in which we plant our homes, we plant our families, we plant our businesses. This is provided by government. But the big government guys want to make sure that that soil is very, very thin, because they've already got their billion dollars. Right? They, they, this is a huge, I got mine, screw you, mentality that exists on the right in this country that is funded and fueled by very, very wealthy people who don't want to see their taxes go up. But the fact of the matter is, if taxes across the board were to go up in the United States, workers' wages would increase and the government would have the funds to do the things that the majority of Americans want done. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The absolute majority of Americans want free health care, free education, and a, and a decent wage. We can do that. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. And welcome back. John, watching Free Speech TV in Henderson, Nevada. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, I've got a, just a short story about a lady in Milwaukee who wasn't allowed to vote in the 
2016 election because she had lost her driver license just before the election. Oh, my. She's uh, 66, doesn't drive anymore. Uh, she's got chronic lung disease and a bad knee, often using a walker to get around. She took to the polling place her Social Security card, Medicare card, and her government-issued bus pass, which has her name and photo on it. But Wisconsin wouldn't allow her to vote. Because um, a bus pass is not part of the acceptable uh, yeah. uh, government-issued IDs, although in Texas a uh, carried concealed carry permit is. Yeah, exactly. Well, they didn't come up with that one yet, but they do require either a driver license, state ID, passport, military ID, veterans affairs card, naturalization papers, or a tribal ID. And wow. the, the list is uh, uniquely excluding the kind of government issued bus pass with the photo that right. she had. Right. So, uh, you know, her, it's because her they, she's the exact person that the Republicans don't want to vote. She's somebody who's concerned about her health. She's, she's 64, 65 years old. She's concerned about Medicare. She's concerned about Social Security. She's going to be voting those issues, and therefore the Republicans do not want her to be allowed to vote, and, which is exactly, exactly what happened. Exactly. And the, um, Trump was elected uh, in Wisconsin by fewer than 23,000 votes. Yeah. And how many tens of thousands of people were in the, her same situation? Yeah, yeah, it's and, amazing. Um, I'm, I'm, it doesn't, you know, I, I don't know, but I would say that she's probably independent or democratic. Yeah, I'm, in, in all probability. John, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. And thanks for pointing that out. And uh, uh, Leon, I'm going to pick you up right after the right after the break in about two minutes. Dean in Los Angeles. Hey, Dean, thanks for watching Free Speech Good TV. What's up? Good afternoon, Tom. Yeah, it's like 102 in the shade here right now. Oh my! Uh, <laughs> Global warming <laughs> arrives. We're getting too used to it. Um, I had a quick thing. I don't know if, forgive me, you covered this earlier, but uh, the judge in Maryland, Judge Masseet, uh in the emoluments case. Right. Yeah, I did, I did cover it. He's letting that, that case against Trump go forward. Yeah. Um, I'm, well, I find it amazing. He like, apparently wrote a 52-page opinion piece before he said, and I'm tossing out your, your, uh, your effort to stop it. Um, right. It just sends this message to me that look, there's no way you're going to cl classify this judge as I'm, you know, doing this because I'm a liberal judge or something. He's very yeah. clear about that, that it's a watershed moment. It's the first time this issue will be covered in a constitutional uh, provision regarding emoluments. And mm -hmm. I think it's uh, it's pretty heavy duty. I think it's uh, was he a Republican appointee or a Democratic appointee? Do you know? I don't know. I didn't notice. Yeah. I should look that up. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I didn't know you had a 52-page opinion. I'm, I'm going to have to look for that after I get off the air. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. It would make good yeah. reading, I think. But so I, I think it's, you know, as far as everything goes, it's favorable news to me. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Dean, thanks for the call. And thanks for the heads up on that. I really appreciate it. We'll be back. It's uh, coming up on about 11 minutes before the hour. Stick around. Welcome back. Leon in London, England, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Leon, what's up? Hi, hi. How are you going, Tom? Very well, thank you. Um, yeah, London. So, Tom, uh, I've been, 
uh, I've been listening to your show for a couple of years now. I love it. Well, thank you, Lee. And uh, as, they, uh, as the active Labour member party, I think uh, our causes are quite akin, really. I agree. Anyway, I just wanted to, uh, to give your listeners, stroke viewers, uh, a brief kind of understanding of how the majority, and I do mean the majority, of the UK feels about Trump and his effect on the so-called special relationship mm -hmm. between the US and the UK. <clears throat> um, I was on that protest march last week when Trump was in the UK, you know, the one where the glorious baby blimp was flown yep. above the <laughs> Houses of Parliament. That, that got a huge Was that cheer. a florist who put together that blimp? I didn't know that. It was, sorry? It was a florist who put together the blimp? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Huh. yeah. Just an average guy? But, you know, do you know, the, it was crowdfunded, uh -huh. and they originally asked for uh, £15,000. They ended up getting over £60,000. Wow. That, that's how... Uh, that's how the blimp is coming feel. to the United States now, right? That's right. It's yeah. on your, it's over, it's on your, it's on okay, your way. Okay, so I, I interrupted you, Leon. You were telling the story. Right. I'm um, sorry. So anyway... Uh, I don't think that was widely, widely reported. Uh, it certainly wasn't over here, but I doubt it was over there. That that protest with uh, over 200,000 plus people was the second largest, largest protest ever seen in London. That it was wow. second only to the anti-Iraq war protest in 2003. Um, so, you know, that was a huge protest. Uh, that's, you know, that's an indicator of how strongly people detest Trump in the UK. Yeah. I mean, you know, for every one person that attended that, there was probably five more that couldn't. Yeah. But also, when it was first announced that Trump was due to visit the UK, um, an online petition was set up to try and convince Theresa May to rescind the invite. That, that petition itself got 1.2 million people signed that petition. Now, that, that's one, but the UK's you know, no, it's 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 not nearly as obviously not nearly as big as the the U.S. But that's one sixth of the U.K. population signed that petition. Wow! You know, so that 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 shows you, you know, that uh, it, Trump is detested over here. He really is. He and yeah. um, sometimes we're amazed that that I know he didn't win the election. Uh, well, he certainly didn't win the majority in the election. Right. But we're amazed that. So many Americans could be fooled by this used car salesman. Yeah. You know, I, I work in a bureau de change in the West End of London, which is like central London. And I meet many Americans, you know, that come in to have their, their dollars exchanged for euros or for sterling. And, um, and as, uh, as part, of the, part of the procedure, I have to take their passports. And, and I have a brief sort of interaction. I can chat to them and talk to them. And I've noticed that the majority of... Americans that come in, and I've seen their passports, so I can see that they've traveled about and they've experienced other cultures, and they all seem to hate Trump mm -hmm. if Trump comes up in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, they're even embarrassed by him. Yeah. But it's the ones that, that come over and have just come over, come straight from America, maybe doing the, the, the London thing and then going straight back. They're the ones who've who never visited to, other countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it... And they're the ones who are the Trump just, supporters. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, it seems like the more, the more you're in touch with other cultures, other, other societies, other ways of, you know, other communities, 
the more that you realize that this yeah. is a, a dangerous man. And, I, uh, I, I think know, the, 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 the British people are, are keeping careful track of what's going on here. In 2004 or thereabouts, maybe 2005, I was invited to speak at, uh, at Oxford at one of the yeah. colleges there. I, I, I have it in my head that it was Christ Church, but it might have been another one. Yeah, it might be and, Christ Church. Yeah. And, and before... That's where they do their political science. Yeah, and I, and I spoke to a group of about 200 uh, students who were political science students. Yeah. And I, you know, I was introduced, I walked up there, and I was going to be talking about corporate personhood, of all because I've written yeah. a book on this. And before I could say anything, one of the kids in the front row said, what's your position on Bush and the war in Iraq? And and that they, they literally as I, I you know before he even finished his sentence people all over the stands it was like you know uh, uh, prime minister's uh, questions all over the, the the auditorium where they were yelling these questions at me about Bush I was being heckled about Bush and so I yeah. held up my hands I said I disavow George W Bush as my president yeah. I think what he is doing is criminal uh, you know with yeah. the with the war in Iraq and and the and the, the black sites and the torture and all this yeah. I, I totally disagree with all of it. And then yeah. everybody was like, oh, actually, there was, right. there was a pause. And then, so they, and then they let me give my speech. Yes, and I can, ima I can imagine it went down really well, Tom. But uh, you can imagine Bush, I think Bush, although he was a, a very dangerous man and ended up killing millions of people, Trump, Trump, I think, is, a, is <laughs> but he makes Bush like a baby. Trump, no, Trump Bush went into it intentionally for political purposes. dropping atomic bombs on Iran, you yeah. know, uh, he, he's, he's a real different, but, you know, Bush had some sensible people around him. T Trump has surrounded himself in, with megalomaniacs like himself. Yeah. So, and he's uh, incompetent, and, people, and he's incompetent. They do, they really do understand and they follow it. I think so, um, I think so. Leon, I, so. I gotta bail, I'm sorry, that music means that we're at the end of the show. But thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for watching us there in London. Uh, it's great to hear from you, love, love to hear the accent. <laughs> And don't forget, my friends, we'll be back tomorrow. But in the meantime, there are things you can do. You can, you can be researching local activist groups. You can be uh, checking out the Democratic Party, finding out when the next meeting is that you could go to. You can be telling your friends about this program and others that might help educate them. Whatever you do, get a, do something, right? The republic's at risk. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.